the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is a purely conjecture, never having written a book. But I would imagine that the day that the book is finally revealed to the international and national reading public, it must feel like... Giving birth to a child. Yes, or this great weight is off your shoulder that you can share and now be part of the conversation. Karen Swallow Pryor has for years been one of our favorite guests. She has got a brand new book out. It is called On Reading. I'm sorry. It's called On Reading Well, um, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. Karen, uh, welcome and congratulations. Thank you. This day has been so long awaited, and I am so glad to celebrate it with you guys. You're my first live interview today to celebrate the book. Yay! We're thrilled. We're, absolute, <laughs> we're absolutely thrilled. I mean, it's it's packed full of of discussion on great books. It's great writing on your part, and it's married with some great art. I mean, you must be really happy with the overall product now that you've seen it. I am I am so happy. I mean, the art alone is worth the price. So don't even you don't even have to worry about my words, whether they're good or not. But um, <laughs> Ned Bustard is a great artist, and we commissioned special art from him just for this book. And he did the cover. Um, it's a beautiful hardcover book. Um, and yeah, and hopefully my words are cool too. They are. Nice. They're really really great. Now you and I have talked a lot about you know being kids who kind of I don't know kind of found our place in the world through books. Um, I think you and I share that. Our, our, our uh, mm-hmm. childhood sounds similar. Um, but you write in this book something I appreciate so much. You say it's not enough to read widely, which hopefully you and I have both tried to do. But you say we also have to read well. What does it mean to read well? Well, that is what my whole book is about. But in, in some, I really, I mean it kind of in, in two ways. One is in the most literal way, like to to be able to read well in order to comprehend well, to understand the words and to read slowly and carefully and attentively attentively to get the most meaning Mm -hmm. out of the words, which is not how most of us are reading if we spend any time on the internet today. Uh, But then the other way of reading well is the, the theme of the book, which is reading virtuously, reading to gain virtue from the literary works that we read. I, I chose all works of fiction, novels, and short stories, but to see how virtue is lived out and extracted from these stories um, so that we ourselves can live more virtuously, and that is really the key to the good life, is virtue. So, Karen, what does that mean, then? Um, for people who are uninformed or have never heard that phrase, what are the classical virtues, and how did you apply those or open those up in the book? Well, the phrase, the good life, actually comes directly from Aristotle and what he wrote about ethics. Um, and the good life is actually sometimes translated as happiness, which is interesting because we tend to think of happiness today as being having success in our jobs or having material things. But Aristotle, and then later on the Church Fathers, studied and expanded on his ideas, believed that the good life comes from 
good character. And so the virtues are the things that Aristotle and Aquinas and Augustine and many others identified as the qualities that mark human excellence. And the ones I write about, I, I choose 12 of them, the ones that are most um, extolled by, uh, by philosophers and theologians, and they include courage, justice, prudence, temperance, humility, kindness, patience, love, um, and a few others. They're, they're, they're qualities that we all, regardless of our place or circumstance or means, can cultivate in ourselves, and they are what really make our lives good. So Karen, you've arranged the book so that there's an introduction where you just talk about this idea of reading well and what what reading widely and reading well can can do for us as people and what we can then do in the world, just being people who are continually changed and altered by what we've read, um, hopefully in a good way. And then you give all sorts of examples. Um, you pair a, a, a famous book, a famous work of literature with one of those classical virtues. And so for people who haven't seen the book yet and are trying to kind of figure out how it works, um, it's a really easy book to pick up and read a little bit of. It's not the kind of book that you have to sit down and read it all in one sitting because you can sit down and read the chapter on hope or you can sit down and read the chapter on courage that's married with perhaps one of your favorite books and it can really bring the idea of that virtue alive. Now, Karen, I remember the very first time we met you, you had written booked Literature and the Soul of Me and that book talked about how the books that you read as a kid changed you as a person. So talk about where you got the idea from for marrying a particular book with a particular virtue? Well, of course, I wanted to write another book about books, as I did in Booked, um, but because that book focused on my own life and spiritual journey, and I you know, only have one of those at one life, um, you know, I couldn't do that again. And so um, I wasn't really sure what the, how I would arrange and what the theme would be that would tie these together, but my editor, I mean, yay, editors, <laughs> um, he suggested to me that I focus somehow on the practice of reading and, mm. and practicing what we learn from it. And so then I stumbled across the idea of virtue, something I think we've all heard of these virtues, but we've, you know, we've really lost what they even mean. And so I just started to research them and fell down this wonderful research hole um, because I wanted to learn myself what really, what courage really consists of, what temperance really is, and what diligence means. And so I, I researched these virtues, and then I chose works of literature that I love that I thought um, exemplified them, or oftentimes, sometimes in a negative example, but that, that provide good studies of what these virtues really mean when they are lived out or when we fail to live them out. I see. Karen Swallow Pryor is with us. The release of a brand new book, it starts today, on reading well, finding the good life through great books. So Karen, let's take a book I think that most of us um, have read, probably um, as a school assignment for a lot of people, or just because we love the story. When you talk about virtues, talk about um, the virtue of courage um, and Huckleberry Finn. How do those? How does that courage intersect in that story and the lesson you learn from that to tell us about that? Yeah, well, it was so interesting to learn about courage itself because I think we, we use that word to describe a lot of different things. We think if someone does something really bold or brazen or, you know, someone's outspoken, we just immediately call that courage. But what Aristotle and other philosophers said about courage is it's not just boldness, it actually 
has to preserve some good. So just doing something that requires a lot of guts does not mean it's courageous. It actually has to be something that also preserves good. Mm-hmm. And so in Huckleberry Finn, we see this young, you know, we I think most of us know the story, this poor young kid who's harassed by his father and by his, his guardian and runs away and ends up uh, being uh, taken care of by a runaway slave. Um, and the work is satirical because uh, Twain is actually examining and questioning the racist values of his society and of a slaveholding society, and Huck just reflects those. And so Huck thinks he ends up being courageous by not turning the runaway slave in. But, of course, he's kind of all messed up. He thinks he's doing something wrong when he's doing it right. And he is a picture of virtue, a virtuous courage. But I show in the book that it's actually the runaway slave, Jim, who most exemplifies the virtue of courage because he correctly believes, he, he know when he has to to protect Tom Sawyer, whose foolishness got them into even more trouble, um, he risks his own freedom. He risks being discovered um, by the people who want to uh, steal him back in order to protect this young boy. And he takes that risk anyway because he knows that it is good to try to save this boy rather than preserve his own freedom. And so um, in a very moving and powerful way, the runaway slave presents the most virtuous picture of courage in the story. Wonderful. Karen, um, I grew up in a reformed denomination. And, you know, when I think about the the books that I was told to read or directed to read from church or from people there, um, it was all about books that would tell me what to think. And it wasn't until I was out of college, even, where I started to realize that my reading needed to stop being about what to think. It needed to be about how to think. And you'd think that I would have gotten that in high school or I would have picked that up in college. But, you know, we all come to different realizations at different times in life. But I think I realized that I had spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the right answers were without Mm -hmm. just reading books that would just open my mind. You know, that C.S. Lewis quote that you included in the book, which is, don't you, this is a paraphrase, don't use books, receive books. And I'd spent yeah. a lot of my life, the first 20 years of my life, just using them. Well, I think Christians especially are prone to yeah, this I kind of error because, you know, we, yeah, we, we, we have the answer. We know the ultimate answer is in Christ, and we have a lot of the other answers that go along with it. But we kind of forget that you know, we still live in a world uh, where there are a lot of, of, of things that are not easily answered. And so that's why I think Christians also underappreciate fiction and poetry because that's exactly what they do. What what makes literary art different from other kinds of, you know, beach reads or informational texts is that they don't they they do not give us the answers. A work that gives us the answers is not a literary work. What they do is they recreate experience in all its complexity and ambivalence and they take us along the ride and so we are actually being trained in how to think as we interpret and analyze mm-hmm. and assess and evaluate as we read. All right, so that brings me to Cormac McCarthy. One of your books, or one of your chapters in the book, um, is on hope and it's on the road, which is one of the most gorgeous 
spectacularly sad, bleak, wonderful, where I just <laughs> love that book. I just, I was so happy to see that you included it. Now, people who, who are listening to this and perhaps they've read The Road, they think, well, what is, what is Kathy Ammons doing? I mean, there's not, it's a godless book. It's a hopeless book. It's a dark book. Why could she find anything glorious about it? Um, so, Karen, first off, why did you include The Road in this list? Well, you know, I, I have to admit that, you know, I was sometimes I was choosing, you know, I wanted to write about these virtues and I had to choose a book. But in other cases, I want I wanted to write about a certain book. And so I had to find a virtue that fit it. <laughs> uh, that's how part of this process went. And I love the road. And I want to also I want to say to people who maybe haven't read it, read it. You can also the film version. The adaptation is wonderful. And also the audible version, the narrator of that story is just amazing. Mm-hmm. So I recommend any of those ways, even though they're all different experiences. Um, it is a story that takes place in a post-apocalyptic world where almost everything is gone and most human beings included and there are cannibals and all kinds of dangers. So, But the story centers on this man who's unnamed and his son and their journey toward the sea and to life. And it is filled with hope, with hope trying not to give too many spoilers, because of all that the man does in order to preserve this boy's life and how, in the end, he succeeds. And it's because he exemplifies virtuous hope, Mm -hmm. which is defined as regarding something good in the future that is difficult but possible to obtain. And the setting in the story couldn't match that definition any better. How about the portion of the book where um, the boy asks his dad, what's the bravest thing you ever did? (gasps) He says, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says, get up this morning. You know, and you don't have to live in that kind of a, you know, dramatic world that I get that. Yeah. You know, to get that right. Right. Because sometimes that is the bravest thing we can do or the most hopeful thing we can do. Karen Swallow Pryor is with us. Her brand new book has uh, hit stores today on reading well, finding the good life through great books. So, Karen, people uh, are listening to the conversation, especially you and Kathy, go through this. And, you know, they're hearing a, a lot of books, uh, whether it's The Road or Huck Finn or The Great Gatsby or a Tale of Two Cities or Silence. Many, many different books and stories you've covered in, in your book. And my guess is a lot of people are um, um, turned off because they may feel intimidated or the conversation uh, and the work is a little too erudite. But the fact of the matter is, this is something that you don't have to be afraid of. And there's great wealth and depth uh, that would be life-changing in many ways if you were so inclined. But we as a society somehow, we've lost Mm -hmm. that that drive over these last uh, several decades, haven't we? Yes, we have, and that's exactly why I wrote this book. I mean, I teach English literature. I'm a professor, but I teach students who also, you know, don't necessarily know how to read these things. And to be honest with you, you know, it doesn't come naturally to me either. So I feel like that's part of what makes me a good teacher is I have had to struggle to really understand and appreciate literature. And so I, you know, I I am hoping both to instruct people in how to read literature better and read it well and also to model it for them so you don't even have to have read these works of literature or even afterwards you don't need to read them i'm just hopefully modeling it so that 
you can pick up the mm-hmm. books that you know the great works of literature you're interested in that you want to understand better and apply some of these same skills because reading is just like any other skill the more you do it well the better you get at it mm-hmm. that is that is so true and sometimes it's tough but it can be worth it if you push through it always. and of course always if you do it with a good teacher now there are several books in this list that i have never read um and so i was really happy and and i did read those chapters and i feel like i gained something like i've never read uh silence and but i but i read the chapter and i thought okay that reading your chapter made me want to read the mm-hmm. book um, and so if people, Yay. yeah, so if people are looking at this and they're thinking, but I never read Huck Finn or I never read The Road. It doesn't matter. You, if you read the chapter, you might right. want to read The yeah. Road. Um, and, right. and, 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 and you'll still gain something even if you don't want to read it. Right. Um, that I wrote it. I wrote it for people who know and love these works. And I wrote it for people who, who haven't read them, too. Yeah. OK, so let me go back to something that you talk about in this book that you talked about in your first book as well, which is just that um, that reading fiction changes us as people. So it makes us, there are all sorts of studies done that people that read literature end up being more compassionate people or more understanding people. And it's not because people who read literature are better people. It's just that they end up because of their reading, they're inhabiting somebody else's worldview just by virtue of being immersed in a story. Um, So talk about that. Talk about the if people are, like John said, intimidated by literature, like there's a great thing to be gained by putting yourself in those stories exactly i mean i again i think i think our mindset today is that we read something in order to get information and get the answer and so we're uncomfortable when we don't know what we're supposed to think but that is exactly what literature is asking us to do we get introduced to a character that we think oh hey this guy's great and then we read along we're like wait a minute that's not so good how am i supposed to feel about this well that's exactly the kind of thinking we're supposed to go through as we read literature and because that's exactly the kind of thinking when we meet a person in real life we we you know we might think at first that they're great and then we're not so sure and then we find out oh they're a complex mix of of black and white and gray just like me um that's what literary fiction does is it recreates really what what life is like um mm-hmm. by using uh words as an art form and um and so we don't read because literature, because it informs us, but we read because it, it forms us. Uh, literary characters have a lot to teach us about our own character. Interesting. I was with my sister and, and brother-in-law this summer, and my brother-in-law is, um, he, he just reads nonstop. And so he gave me a book a few months ago called Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher, which is about mm-hmm. um, Edward Curtis, who was a photographer in Seattle who photographed American Indians as the Indians were disappearing. It's a fabulous read. And so I said to him, oh, you know, we were talking about the book. And I said to him, just off the cuff, uh, are you reading any fiction? And my brother-in-law, in in an offhanded way, said, no, I don't read fiction anymore. There's too many fat, fascinating things about real life. Oh, see, that's such a mistake. And I, I, it kind of like stung me. I was like, oh, really? Well, you know, and then we kind of had that conversation. What's your response, Karen? Well... My response is I'm full, I'm full of real life every day, and so I need more fiction. No. Um, I mean, I, I, again, I think this is the mistake that many people make is that, it, you know, what fiction does is it's not, it shines a light alongside real life so that we can see real life more clearly mm-hmm. and better than we would have mm-hmm. before. It's not real life, but it illuminates real life. Karen, how about that gorgeous Martha Nussbaum quote you put in the book? 
and let me read just a couple lines of it. We have never lived enough. Our experience is without fiction, too confined, too parochial. Literature extends it, making us reflect and feel about what might otherwise be too distant for feeling. I mean, it's just such a gorgeous quote. That's exactly what it is, right? Is that we need fiction because we need we need a bigger life than the one we're currently living. Exactly. I mean, we can we can travel so many places. We can inhabit so many different kinds of experiences and see the world through so many different eyes when we read fiction. Um, it, it expands and, and enlarges reality. It doesn't diminish it. Karen, Congratulations. We, we love the book. It's we just sure wonderful. I mean, we love you too, but really, I mean, you've just done a great job on this. You must feel great today. I do feel great today. I'm, I've been teaching all day, so I'm doing my favorite thing and, and uh, talking to people like you in between, and so it's been rich and full, and I'm I, I'm, you know, I'm living my best life right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, fabulous. Well, thanks an awful lot. Listen, it's a, it's a terrific book. It, it really, really is. is. All the details about it are available right now. So find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You also find our website, johnnycathyshow.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.